Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Hey there, this is Nicole, the host and producer of the Found Down Podcast. We're going to talk about ECMO and COVID today, and I'm really excited about this interview with Lisa Soltis. But before we get into that, I just have a few announcements. One, happy Nurses Week. Yes, it's still Nurses Week. And I, and actually I'm like, there's like, it's like Nurses Day, Nurses Week, Nurses Month. I'm not sure exactly why there's those different delineations, but I hope that you are feeling appreciated um, if you haven't followed along on my Instagram, please do. You still have time to enter in to win some prizes. The deadline is May 12th at midnight. Also, um, you definitely want to follow along with Nicole Kupchik's Instagram as well. And that's at Nicole Kupchik. Um, my Instagram is at found on podcast. Um, but check out her Instagram cause she's also doing nurse giveaways. I want to talk about Morocco for a second. That trip that is launched, officially launched, my Morocco nurses retreat is half sold. So if you're interested in wanting to go to Morocco this fall, go to unroundretreats.com and check out the trip details. And if you're interested in signing up, um, you want definitely want to reserve your spot because I think it might sell out. And this honestly will be a great opportunity to have a like transformational experience being in a place that is so foreign from the United States. It's going to be intoxicatingly beautiful and um, a feast for the senses. And also you'll have time to relax and practice some self-care modalities um, as well as see an amazing country. So if you're interested, go to unwindretreats.com and check it out there. Now I want to talk about our amazing sponsor, Nicole Kupchik, CNS and educator. You know, she has a ton of products and courses out there for nurses to continue their education, to empower their practice. She's currently doing a big Nurses Week sale. So go to NicoleKupchikConsulting.com and check out what she's got going on. I have really enjoyed digging into some of her courses and empowering my practice and learning more. And I hope that you can too. We need CEs for our license every year, especially if you're CCRN certified. So go check out her content at NicoleCupchaConsulting.com. And you can use the code, coupon code FoundDown20. That's FoundDown20 at checkout for 20% off. All right, let's get talking about ECMO and COVID. Welcome to the FoundDown Podcast. 
This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and today I'm so excited and honored to be talking to Lisa Soltis, Senior ECMO Clinical Specialist at Fresenius. Did I say that right? No. Yes, Fresenius. Yep. Yep. Fresenius um, Medical Care North America. She's an experienced clinical nurse specialist, an ECMO specialist, and among has long-standing history working in critical care and actually even was indoctrinated as a fellow, which like that's such a rare thing as for a nurse to have as an accomplishment. So I might ask Lisa about that, but my hope is today we're going to talk about ECMO and COVID and what a year for that. Um, but before we get into that, hey, hey, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So um my, my first podcast. I'm pretty excited. That's awesome. Um, and, and how are you? Like, how, how have you been? I've been good. I can say that it's, um, you know, obviously this past year has just been, um, you know, extraordinary in so many ways. Um, and, um, uh, doing what I do with ECMO has, provided some opportunities and also some challenges. Um, you know, there was a time when I felt that, um, I could do more because I wasn't traveling. And so I went back to the bedside again and, um, was working in a critical care unit and was excited to be back. Um, and my very first shift off of orientation, I had three days of orientation. It was a hospital that I had worked at for years. So it was, um, you know, a pretty easy orientation and my first shift in the COVID units, um, you know, was just um, such an unbelievable experience, you know, last summer. And um, unfortunately, the one of the first, it was the first COVID patient that I took care of. I was not doing well. Patient was not responsive. And I had to help a family say goodbye to their loved one over an iPad. And, um, you know, and the patient wasn't responsive. And, you know, trying to help that family, you know, understand what was going on and trying to help them reconcile what they were seeing. And, um, you know, that experience will never leave me. And, um, you know, and then to hear later on when people saying that the numbers weren't real or that it wasn't really, you know, and it just, um, frustrated me to no end um, because they just have no idea what all the nurses across the country, across the world have been dealing with for this last year. And um, so that was, a, um, I think that was an experience I needed to have, um, but it's um, certainly one that I don't ever want to repeat. And um and all the patients I took care of from that point were always in the COVID unit. It was always COVID patients um, at various levels. But my very first one was, um, there's just no other words for it. Um, it was heartbreaking. So in light of that, though, um, you know, I've 
found other ways to contribute to kind of help with the COVID um, experience and especially uh, when it comes to ECMO. And we're seeing, you know, changes in ECMO therapies and in response to the pandemic. And so uh, that part has been exciting to be able to um, help teach ECMO and help uh, programs, you know, fine tune what they're doing with ECMO and to also see phenomenal outcomes with that. So that part has been exciting um, as well. So there's good and bad with everything. So I'm I'm fortunate to be on the good side of it now, but I just want to say thank you for sharing that. Thank you for also going back to the bedside and heeding that call that a lot of us felt of like, how, how can we do more and, and, um, feeling helpless. I'm sure. I mean, it's just, just a wide array of emotions. Um, and man, I swear if people, (laughs) Those deniers out there, if they just spent a day in the COVID ICU, yeah. just like Even shadow. an hour. Yeah, right. An just hour. an hour. Like it's, it's the stuff of nightmares, you know? It is. It is. Yeah. Oh. And, um, and people just don't understand it. And, um, you know, with my travel, they have conversations with people, you know, in airports and on airplanes and, you know, say, you know, well, you know, I know the numbers are fabricated, you know, I've got a buddy who's a security guard at a hospital and, you know, anyone who walks through the door, they automatically call him COVID. And, and I said, no, that's not, that's not happening. And he goes, oh no, my buddy said it is. And I said, well, I can guarantee you it's not. So it's it's like, it's, it's a dagger through the heart. I think it is. Yeah, it, it really is. But you know, he firmly believed his buddy who's a security guard knows more than <laughs> the medical community. So, okay. <laughs> I hope you have a good day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And please get vaccinated because we don't want to see you. Exactly. Exactly. ICU. Exactly. Yes. Oh man. What? Uh, yeah. Super heavy. You are in a unique position in being working with ECMO in the time of COVID like that what a, I just, what an interesting, um, time to be, have that be your specialty when, you know, we're going to get into that, but like, yeah, you know, where they have this life-saving therapy, um, that is quite complicated, but mm-hmm. let's, let's transition into talking about ECMO and, um, and I'm just honored that you're here because I know this is your area of specialty and I'm just Thank you. excited it's, for uh- the guests very passionate about it. Um, you know, always have been, um, I've been a critical care nurse for 26 years, you know, 24 of those have been an open heart cardiac surgery. Um, and so I've seen how it's changed over the years from, you know, a last ditch, you know, option, um, to, you know, advancement of therapies, of advancement of technology of devices that are available, Um, And even now in this last year, some of the things that we've seen um, change in response to the patient population and patient needs um, with that. So it's really been um, an extraordinary year from that perspective um, to see how things have been progressing with that. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. So um, with that, I guess I'll go ahead and get started. Yay! (laughs) All right. So, you know, 
first off, you know, I want to start with, you know, what is ECMO? Um, obviously, uh, it stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Years ago, when we first started it, as I said, it was a last ditch, you know, effort, uh, usually that was not successful because we would use it as a last resort. And so uh, one of the surgeons I worked with years ago used to joke and say that ECMO actually stood for even corpses may oxygenate. Uh, So, um, which, you know, wasn't that far from the truth because, you know, you could, you know, technically keep somebody on ECMO indefinitely, um, you know, without neurologic, uh, you know, response, (laughs) but luckily I'm happy to say we've moved on from that now more, the trend, I guess, that we're starting to see people is also refer to it as ECLS or extracorporeal life support, um, because ECMO really is more than just oxygenation, because we can provide both oxygenating support for the lungs and pulmonary support, as well as hemodynamic support in cardiogenic shock, and um, not just from post-cardiac surgery. So we're seeing it, you know, after an acute MI, um, cardiac arrest, uh, different uh, situations where ECMO then is a, um, you know, a therapy that we can institute. It's not a treatment, doesn't fix anything, uh, but it certainly can help support the patient both from a cardiac and pulmonary support with that. Um, so um, it's been interesting to see how that um, has transitioned, but it literally is a form of cardiopulmonary bypass uh, for long-term support of both respiratory and cardiac function um, for particular patients. And obviously, as we said, different um, etiologies um, with that. The different types of ECMO that we have, then there's um, VV ECMO or venovenous ECMO, which is basically um, pulmonary support just for the lungs. And that's been the primary type of ECMO we've seen utilized uh, with these COVID patients. Occasionally it can start as both cardiac and pulmonary, but for the most part, it's been mostly um, venovenous and pulmonary support for patients. VA or veno-arterial ECMO then is where we basically bypass the heart and lungs and provide, you know, hemodynamic support, perfusion, and oxygenation um, for the body. The difference is um, sometimes people will say, you know, well, you know, this one is more, you know, difficult to manage than the other. And really the only difference in these different types of ECMO is where the cannulas are placed and where the blood is coming from and where it's going um, with that. So for venovenous, we're, you know, draining from the venous system from the body, it goes to the pump then goes through an oxygenator and then is returned to the patient on the venous side again. So we pre-oxygenate the blood before it hits the lungs. Usually they're cannulated um, either uh, femorally, so from the femoral vein to the pump and then returned back either to um, another vein or the jugular, we can return it that way. Usually with the jugular, then it's gonna go right into the right heart and then that makes it easier for it to get right to the lungs. Um, We're also seeing a lot of uh, centers using a single site where it's a dual lumen cannula. So one cannula coming out of the jugular and the way the cannula is designed is the one lumen is very long. So it's actually pulling from the inferior vena cava goes to the pump and then it returns to the superior vena cava. And again, that blood goes directly into the right heart in the right ventricle. Um, So, wow. Those are really interesting, um, becoming much more popular um, because they, with a jugular cannulation, it makes it much more uh, um, feasible for your patients to ambulate. 
And, um, you know, again, mobility we're finding is a crucial point um, with that. So that would be vena venous. With veno arterial, then we're still draining typically from a femoral vein, goes to the pump, goes to the oxygenator, and then it's actually returned to an artery. So most of the time it's the um, left femoral artery, usually that return going back up the aorta. So again, it's in a retrograde fashion that it's pumping back up towards the heart. Mm -hmm. um, so that can pose some certain challenges, obviously. Um, or then if it's after open heart surgery, then they may have what we call a central cannulation where they've actually cannulated directly into um, the vena cava and the um, jugular, or I'm sorry, the um, aorta. Um, oh. going directly. And so then the chest is usually left open um, in that particular situation. So wow. um, that one is typically more rare um, that we see that type of cannulation with that. But um, for COVID purposes, which is what we're kind of talking about today, it's primarily the VV type um, that we're seeing uh, with that. Can I ask one question? Absolutely. So your goal with the oxygenating of the venous blood, you know, normally... Mm -hmm that, you know, when our venous blood returns, it's like what, 60 to 80 is your SVO2 mm -hmm. or right, what's the goal for the, I mean, are you looking? Yeah. I guess what's your goal, uh, SVO2 or, or I, I don't know, like arterial. Yeah. Sorry, you probably question. know what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. So yeah. So normally, um, you know, we want that SVO2 or the mixed venous coming back to the heart, you know, to be, you know, somewhere in the 60 to 70 type range is what we typically see. So for VV ECMO, we're looking for it to be more in the 80 to 85% um, so that we've got better oxygenated blood going into the lungs. Um, our hope is that, you know, the lungs can contribute some oxygenation to it, but at minimum, you know, we want the blood coming into the right side of the heart, then basically at like 85% is typically our goal. Um, anything above that then is, you know, kind of bonus for that. Um, but you know, we don't have to have it at hundred percent coming back in. We are hopeful the lungs will contribute, um, some to that. And then obviously the changes that we make in the therapy, as far as the amount of oxygen and the gas, how fast the oxygen is, um, flowing into that, um, our goals then, um, are based off the patient's ABG. So again, we're looking at, you know, a PAO2 of at least 60 millimeters of mercury pressure in that. And so again, we kind of make um, adaptations and changes to their therapy based on that. So yeah, that's a great question. So it doesn't have to be 100% in VV um, because we're expecting the lungs to contribute something, um, hopefully. Um, not always the case, but typically that's what we're looking for. Cool. So um, some of the other goals for VB ECMO then um, basically is to make sure, you know, they have adequate cardiac function. Um, so if they do have any cardiac compromise, then they're certainly going to reevaluate and determine if they need VA support and actually um, allow us to provide more cardiac support um, for that. Um, and again, it's going to be a venous drainage going to a venous return, um, usually in that superior vena cava um, with that. So typically VV support we're going to do for patients that have had some sort of a pulmonary injury or pulmonary insults um, with that, where they are not able to adequately oxygenate as well as not able to ventilate, which is the removal of CO2. So you can see not only hypoxia, but the hypercarbia associated with that. And ECMO is very effective at resolving 
the CO2 um, uh, elevations um, as well. Again, the key to ECMO is that it needs to be a reversible etiology. So if it's some sort of a um, massive trauma or some sort of um, irreversible damage to the lungs, um, there's, you know, ECMO isn't going to fix anything. It just basically buys us time to either allow the lungs to heal or if a patient, you know, needs to have a lung transplant, which sometimes, you know, we've heard of a few cases of that with COVID um, as well, where the damage to the lungs is just, um, you know, irreversible at that point. But usually ECMO should not go in until we actually have an exit strategy. We know that the patient's going to be able to come off of it or get transplanted. Um, some of the other types of injuries as far as that lead to ARDS, um, you know, you certainly can see that with, you know, different types of pancreatitis, sepsis, different shock states, trauma, burns, especially inhalational injuries and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, in my uh, previous dealings at the bedside as an ECMO specialist, you know, we had a lot of burn patients where that inhalational injury um, causing, you know, transient ARDS type picture for those patients. And then your primary lung injuries like pneumonias, traumas, aspiration, drowning, um, and then obviously these viral, um, you know, pneumonias and uh, COVID especially, because um, that's been a, a long kind of recovery process um, for those uh, patients as well. So again, basic goals um, is to, you know, basically make sure we're oxygenating and removing the CO2. The interesting part with the um, oxygenator, or sometimes they refer to it the membrane, um, so the, the gas is flowing through these hollow fibers, and then the blood flows around the fibers, um, and that's how gas exchange occurs. So the amount of oxygen that we're giving is what helps drive the hemoglobin being able to pick up oxygen and then the blood you know, becomes oxygenated before it leaves the membrane. But the flow of the gas, so how fast that gas is flowing through the fibers is what drives ventilation. So the higher the gas is flowing, if it's flowing at three or four liters or five or six liters through the oxygenator, that's what drives ventilation and blowing off CO2. So we look at the FiO2, or we call it the FSO2, the, the fraction of the sweep-inspired oxygen. And so if it's at 100%, that's going to drive oxygenation. But if the sweep is at four liters, then that drives the CO2. And so just like your ventilator, if my CO2 is too high, then I need to either you know, increase the sweep like we would increase our rate or tidal volume like we would do on a ventilator. And so then we can make those adjustments on the ABG as well. And it doesn't affect oxygenation, it just affects the CO2. So that's kind of a, um, an interesting aspect uh, from that as well. So, um, you know, again, when I um, talk about, you know, considering when to utilize ECMO, it needs to be reversible. Um, the key also is that, um, uh, when you're putting a patient on the cannulas. Um, sometimes I hear people refer to them as catheters, but um, these cannulas are so large that um, they're out of the catheter realm oh. of size. And so, um, so, you know, they can be anywhere from 19 French all the way up to 31, 32 French um, catheter or cannulas, which are very, very large, um, you know, like almost literally the size of a garden hose. Um, so, um, it is um, 
you know, a, a scary thought to think about the amount of blood flow, of, you know, four or five liters per minute going through these very large cannulas. Um, and so again, if something goes wrong, you know, it could be catastrophic in a matter of moments um, with that. So yeah, um, those, those of us involved with ECMO, you know, will joke that, you know, you've got 90% of calm, you know, smooth sailing, everything's kind of flowing the way it should and everything's going great. And then you have about 10% of terror where, you know, an alarm goes off or something gets kinked or, you know, uh, you know, stop got stop cock gets turned the wrong way or something. And, um, you know, the effects could be devastating with that. And so, um, you know, just hypervigilance always, um, when you're managing, uh, these particular patients, just because if something does go wrong, it could be catastrophic. So yeah, luckily, I, that's very rare. <laughs> I, I remember hearing about some, somebody, um, who was an, on ECMO, just like their, their cannula got dislodged. Yes. Or not. Yeah. yeah. And so that, I mean, yeah. I don't, yeah, like that's an enormous emergency. If you're thinking about yes. all the flow and the pressure and the blood and the volume and the, you know, it's mm-hmm. supposed to be going one route anyway. Uh, yeah. I don't remember the outcome. I feel like it wasn't good. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sure if a cannula becomes dislodged, um, that's, you know, almost, um, you know, 99.9% unsurvivable, um, yeah. unless it's, you know, um, you know, a situation where they're in the operating room and they can quickly get them on cardiopulmonary bypass versus ECMO, um, which is pretty rare, but, um, yeah, so that's probably the worst of the worst. Luckily it is very rare, but I mean, in a matter of moments, you know, you can, you know, basically, you know, patient can exsanguinate in just moments. Um, so yeah, that's why, you know, it's, um, you know, uh, certainly important that ECMO facilities, you know, have those plans in place and, um, have appropriate personnel and, you know, team members to make sure that, you know, you've got somebody close by that can help manage and everybody understands what to do, um, in a, an emergent situation like that. So, yeah, I've seen, um, I've seen a couple events, but, um, luckily I haven't seen a, a um, well, I, I, I take that back. I did see a cannula dislodgement, but we were in the OR when it happened. So we were able to manage it very quickly and, um, and that they did have a good outcome with that, but Phew. still frightening nonetheless. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I bet everyone was, uh, I mean, yes, yeah. high, high, luckily high, I was high you know, stakes. in the back of the room. Um, and we had perfusion up front, so, um, it was all good. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right. So that's kind of the overview just on ECMO itself. So, um, I want to talk a little bit then obviously about COVID and the impact that we've seen. Um, for those of you not familiar with the ECMO world, um, we have a wonderful organization called ELSO, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization. Um, this was developed, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And so it was basically a, um, a group of um, practitioners all over the world that basically wanted to be able to share information, share outcomes, best practice, um, and collaborate on, you know, how to manage these patients, especially as technology was changing, therapy was changing. Um, and so it was really an opportunity just to share uh, information and best practice and they developed a registry uh, as well so that you could participate and put in information um, about your patients. 
you know, it started out primarily pediatric. And then when we had the um, uh, surge with the H1N1 uh, pandemic back in 2009, and we saw the application more towards adult patients than we really saw the number of patients grow as well as the number of um, ECMO centers um, grow as well. So, you know, they publish annually their, um, actually semi-annually their data um, and they have it, um, you know, easily accessible. If you're not familiar with their site, it's elso.org, elso.org. Um, they have a tremendous, wealth of resources and information and uh, data um, that you can query and look at to, to see, you know, about outcomes and best practice with that. And so, you know, not surprising in response to the, you know, COVID uh, situation, then they started an open registry as well for even non-ELSO centers to be able to contribute information about their COVID patients that they've been putting on ECMO. Um, and to, you know, be able to share again, information and practice uh, changes to see, you know, what we can do to um, help um, improve that. So um, that was a, an interesting aspect and to see them respond so quickly uh, to be able to share that information internationally um, was tremendously helpful. So in March, you know, was when we really kind of you know, realized this is a big issue and we started to see changes in regulations and, um, you know, um, practice as far as, you know, management of these patients and that it's been issued as a global pandemic. And so uh, as early as March of 2020, then um, ELSO and um, the World Health Organization put out recommendations as far as planning and provision of ECMO therapy. Um, for severe ARDS with these um, COVID patients with that. And so um, basically they developed a think tank of all these ECMO experts around the world to see, you know, what's going to be best for us to try and provide um, this type of um, therapy with that. One of the challenges is that, you know, most hospitals don't provide ECMO. You've got some larger facilities that you know have this therapy. And so the larger facilities, it's kind of like a hub and spoke, uh, you know, wheel type, um, uh, you know, practice model. And so smaller facilities would have patients that have ARDS, they would transfer to a larger facility to get ECMO therapy. But with so many unanswered questions about the transmission of this disease process and the risk of transporting, you know, whether it's by helicopter or by, you know, ambulance or whatever, and just the unknowns with that, you know, everybody was a little leery on, is this appropriate for us to be transferring these patients and what would be the best, um, you know, course of action as far as from that perspective. They also then, um, in March 24th, then published a guideline also um, as far as a consensus guideline for what to do with these COVID patients in conjunction again with um, ELSO uh, as well. So the guidelines, the initial ELSO guidance documents, basically one of the first things that they, um, the points that they made in the document itself was that they were, they did not recommend starting a new ECMO program or starting an ECMO center for the sole purpose of treating COVID patients um, with acute respiratory failure or cardiopulmonary fa failure with that. You know, ECMO therapy is just such a robust type of therapy to provide. And 
having adequate resources and policies and protocols and um, training and equipment and everything that's required to start an ECMO program, you know, really uh, requires a tremendous amount of time and resources as far as, you know, personnel and equipment and everything else and money. Uh, with that. And so, you know, that really can't be the priority with that. Um, And so, um, you know, basically triaging these patients, doing medical management, you know, traditional medical management um, for these patients um, needs to be the priority and really not trying to divert personnel and resources away to develop an ECMO program, because you really want to start small, you want to, you know, be very careful in patient selection. And there were so many unknowns with COVID and, you know, the outcomes were so poor because we really didn't know how to treat these patients. We didn't have, um, you know, the, um, you know, the treatments that, you know, basically we didn't know what to do for them for quite some time. And so um, they really were very strongly against trying to start ECMO just for the purpose of, you know, having um, these COVID patients. And I was really quite um, pleased to see that. And then also looking at, you know, then with the hub and spoke model, then what can we do to maximize protection if we do have patients that we need to. So one of the things that I did see um, early on as well is that, you know, when they were looking at patients to transfer to a larger medical center, these were like extraordinary cases um, where it was, you know, um, a 32 year old pregnant woman, um, where it was, you know, younger people that, you know, had a much higher likelihood of a successful outcome that had extraordinary circumstances with that. So it wasn't your typical 70 something, you know, with COVID because, you know, we know age certainly decreases, uh, you know, survivability uh, with that. And so um, those patients were not the priority to put on ECMO. It was more the younger patients that had a, a higher likelihood of survival. Um, and so that was kind of what we started to see that some of the first patients were much younger um, with, you know, circumstances such as that. It was really quite fascinating to start to hear about it. They also put together like a um, kind of a um, an algorithm as far as you know patient management, and so that you could kind of work through those steps to determine, you know, is this really an appropriate patient uh, to consider for ECMO um, if you had that. Um, you know, some of the other questions that this you know group, this international think tank, you know, is really looking at is you know you know, what about the patients for eCPR? We have several facilities um, that are very adept and have very robust eCPR programs. eCPR is extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So this is when a patient has arrested in the field. Um, most of the time it, well, one, it needs to be a witnessed arrest, but most of the time it's like a VFib, VTAC arrest. Um, Many times it stems from um, a high level um, blockage. So like a right, you know, um, uh, basically like a a left main STEMI or um, some sort of cardiac arrest. um, And they're not able to get ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation in the field. 
So basically they do mechanical, um, usually with a Lucas device, mechanical CPR, that's kind of compressing them in the ambulance and they bring them to an ECMO center. And then they basically cannulate the patient, even though they don't have spontaneous circulation. And then once they get them on ECMO, they're able to treat whatever the cause of the arrest was, and they're still fully supported on ECMO. And so um, the fascinating component of that is that, you know, they're starting to see some pretty decent outcomes um, with that, with eCPR. Whoa. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. So, you know, the question then came in during COVID is, you know, do we still continue with the, the traditional, you know, quote unquote traditional, even though it's pretty new in the last couple of years, you know, for those patients with eCPR and do we continue that? You know, the majority of those patients are, you know, basically they have a, a high grade, you know, uh, coronary blockage. And then once the blockage is alleviated, then the patients, you know, typically recover um, very well. The other challenge with eCPR is it kind of changes the traditional thought process for our EMS crew, because normally, you know, it's you stabilize in the field, and then you transport. Well, if you wait till you have ROSC in the field, and now you're 45, 50 minutes into it, and you still don't have ROSC, what's the likelihood of success if you now try to transport without ROSC and, and be able to get that patient back um, through the use of ECMO. So, um, you know, the the facilities that are doing eCPR have, a you know, one very robust protocols and a very tight relationship with their EMS crews so that they know, you know, the certain criteria that this would be a successful eCPR candidate. And do we pull the trigger to go ahead and transport within like 15 to 20 minutes into the arrest versus, you know, waiting longer, you know, past 30, 45 minutes, because then you've kind of missed the window for that. So lots of discussions on, you know, how do we manage that in the age of COVID um, as well? You know, the you know, early stages of COVID, the issues we have with personal protective equipment. And so again, transporting these patients uh, with that, um, when do you determine futility? Um, because again, you know, you, if someone's on ECMO, they can almost stay on it indefinitely um, because as long as we are, you know, perfusing, especially VA ECMO, where we're providing oxygenation and cardiac support, you know, how do you determine futility? And, um, and then, you know, from a provider perspective, you know, when a provider has said we've, you know, met the criteria where this is not going to be successful, um, you know, and the family is saying, we want you to continue with this therapy and, and how do you manage the ethics component? And that's a whole other Pandora's box of, you know, who determines when, it's time for the therapy to stop. Um, so, um, you know, there's just been uh, a lot of different conversations that aren't new to ECMO, but it's new in this uh, particular situation when it comes to the pandemic um, as well. So um, it's been a very interesting road um, to say the least uh, with that. So um, some of the um, phases um, that they recommended um, in their guidelines, again, um, you know, talked about um, for established ECMO centers, 
um, to really look at their criteria um, and try and maximize the benefits of ECMO in appropriate patients, but not the um, process of thinking, well, all of, all of these patients would be successful. So really being very um, thoughtful and um, critically thinking about which patients are selected for this therapy. And so as a result, what we've seen is many of the patients that have been on ECMO have been in the age range of mid thirties to 50, um, has been the majority of the ECMO patients during this pandemic have been in that age range. Um, and so, um, you know, that's, you know, been one of the changes where typically the ECMO patients had been more in the, um, you know, kind of 50 to 60 range, um, previously, uh, with that. You're probably going to get to this, but what is the survival rate? So that's a great question. We're going to come up to that in just a minute. So yeah, (laughs) thanks. So, um, uh, on the registry, so, um, the data that I have, um, up till, I guess it was about April 15th, um, so far in the registry, there's been, um, 6,288 patients, uh, worldwide that have been supported on ECMO that were, uh, either suspected or COVID positive. Uh, the confirmed cases were 6,267. So there was only about, you know, less than like, what, 19 patients, uh, 20 patients that um, were basically unconfirmed COVID patients. But um, for the most part, um, uh, the, you know, the number of COVID cases, you know, is almost 6,300 that have been supported with that. <clears throat> Um, and so uh, the mortality rate is right at about 50% or so, or the survival rate um, is 50%, which really isn't um, that bad. Usually for straightforward pre-pandemic VV, you know, usually the survival rate was, you know, higher than that. But considering the severity of this type of ARDS um, that we're seeing with these patients, you know, it's um, actually, um, you know, not quite that bad. It's actually better than what we were anticipating um, with that. One of the other things that we've noted, though, with these outcomes is that, you know, we do have uh, in-hospital, you know, survival, you know, so the in-hospital mortality, you know, is at 50%. But what we are seeing is that the um, patients that are surviving are not going home. So we're seeing more patients that are going to either a long-term acute care facility, um, you know, rehab facilities um, requiring home care, um, so they're having more comorbidities at discharge than what we had seen previously with our VD ECMO patients um, with that. So um, not surprising to what we're seeing, um, you know, as far as in the news and in the literature of these long haulers, patients that are having, um, you know, chronic issues with inflammatory response, with dementia, with, um, you know, uh, memory issues, with you know, chronic kidney disease, um, other things as a result of the COVID, um, these new comorbidities are certainly impacting uh, their function, their functionality level. Um, And so, you know, that's been an interesting um, aspect um, that we've seen with that as well. So the survival to discharge, you know, is, you know, not that bad, but it's, you know, the long-term effects um, and so we're still trying to gather data and determine and collect more data to see, you know, is there anything that we can do to help improve that? And, and what are we um, seeing that's making a difference? 
So one of the other things I've noticed um, in some of the facilities um, that I have um, uh, worked with also is that um, they're kind of changing the um, standard of care a bit. And so what used to be, um, you know, when I first started doing ECMO, these patients were, you know, completely sedated. Many times they were paralyzed um, that, you know, because we didn't want any, you know, additional movement or anything. Um, they're completely snowed and, um, you know, we wouldn't move them or tilt them or turn them, you know, because they were too hemodynamically unstable. And uh, now the thought process has moved more towards, you know, keeping these patients more awake, um, if possible to extubate them when they're on ECMO, um, having these patients ambulatory and mobilizing, uh, which they've seen has made a huge difference um, in their recovery. And the other thing that's a little bit different is that, you know, criteria for ECMO, what used to be, you know, a patient had to be on a ventilator for at least 10, 11 days, and they're not responding to proning and all these other additional therapies and still, you know, having this refractory hypoxia. So now we're going to look at ECMO. And what we're seeing now is more of an initial okay, this patient has COVID, they're in ARDS, let's go ahead and get them on ECMO. Um, there's uh, Dr. Hyenga at West Virginia University did a presentation uh, at the um, uh, uh, Thoracic Society uh, and basically talked about the outcomes they were having with their patients. And so their goal was basically to get these patients on ECMO within 12 hours of identification of COVID and developing ARDS. So they were getting them on ECMO early. And then once they were stabilized on ECMO, then they wanted them extubated so that they could, you know, participate in their care. They could ambulate, work with PT, um, eating a normal diet, um, which, you know, is amazing to witness um, when you see, um, you know, an x-ray on a patient that is completely whited out. And the patient is awake and alert, eating breakfast, watching the prices right, um, and and doing well. And then eventually, you know, having a run of only you know ten or twelve days, um, and surviving. And so um, the work that they're doing there, they're sharing, uh, you know, their outcomes and publishing it. And it's really been quite remarkable um, the survival rate of their patients and uh, their um, functionality. You know, their um, ability to go home and not require you know long-term care or rehab um, facilities. So it's really kind of changing how we've traditionally managed ECMO patients, and I'm seeing it at many facilities now across the country where once the patient's stabilized on ECMO, then the next goal is to get them extubated or then uh, if they can't get them extubated, then they'll trach them so that um, they can, you know, work on building up that respiratory stamina. But, um, you know, the goal of ECMO is to rest the lungs and, you know, respiration and oxygenation is really at the cellular level with ECMO. So um, the need of the lungs to be able to inhale and exhale, you know, really is not what's driving their oxygenation. And so if we can support them at a cellular level, and allow the lungs to recover without high pressures, without a lot of peak, without barotrauma and volutrauma, uh, we're seeing much better outcomes for these patients. And obviously, you know, less delirium because they're not completely knocked out. So that has been absolutely fascinating to watch, to see 
patients ambulating, uh, you know, on ECMO and, you know, eating a regular diet and, you know, but their x-ray looks horrible (laughs) and they're doing, I mean, it's really quite amazing. Um, so that's been pretty exciting, uh, to see, uh, as well, um, to see how we're kind of changing and becoming more proactive in our care. And especially with COVID, um, that's been the key to improving outcomes is not waiting till they're so bad. They need ECMO. It's, taking the, the mindset of, okay, they have COVID they're, they're going to need ECMO. So let's go ahead and start it now rather than waiting until, you know, it's a last resort. Yeah. So it's been fascinating. It's really been, um, uh, an exciting year from that perspective, uh, to see, um, and you know, the ECMO centers that, you know, I've spoken with and I work with are still very busy. Um, and so, um, you know, it's not uncommon to see, you know, some of these units with eight to 10 patients on ECMO at one time. Um, and so it's, it's still out there, um, but uh, the changes that they're making in this particular type of uh, therapy has really made a big difference. So that's been exciting. It's super exciting. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I'm like wondering, and you know, what will the future be like in a, you know, in a few years and think about all those patients that are going to live, um, and actually have a much better quality of life than before. Exactly. Um, which is what we want. Yeah. There's Um, been, you know, I've seen multiple cases, especially with pregnant women, um, that have, you know, you know, gotten COVID and, you know, developed severe ARDS and, um, you know, survived ECMO. Um, some of the cases they, um, uh, you know, had to do a, a C-section and, you know, the baby did great. And then the mom eventually, you know, recovered and was able to go home with her baby. And, you know, it's just been miraculous to see, um, some of these outcomes I've seen, uh, frontline healthcare workers, you know, nurses, um, that have gotten COVID, um, and, um, uh, you know, ended up on ECMO and, and survive. Um, so it's really been fascinating. Another interesting aspect, uh, to the ECMO with COVID also is the use of, um, you know, filtration devices like Cytosorb, um, where it basically, um, is a filter that's put in line with ECMO that filters out all those inflammatory cytokines. Um, and so, Uh, they'll do a protocol of that of like three or four days, um, right at the beginning of the ECMO run. And, um, those patients have done very well also. So, um, lots, lots of stuff that's, um, being tried and successful and is in the process of being published. Um, so it's, you know, it's been fascinating. So that is so exciting. It really is. Yeah. Wow. I could, I want to talk to you for a lot longer, but (laughs) I I know know you have to go. Um, and actually truthfully, I want to, I'd love to have you back on to talk about the ethical, um, yes, I would love to talk about that. Absolutely. Um, And I know there's some ECMO specialists that listen to the show that would appreciate your, appreciate your point of view. Well, Well, I I appreciate everyone who listens. I appreciate everybody's efforts in this pandemic. Every nurse that's out there, every respiratory therapist, ECMO specialist, um, we would not be where we are today without all of you. So, um, you know, I just, um, you know, 2020 was the year of the nurse and boy, was it. Um, so <laughs> 
just not in the way that we thought it would be, but um, you know, it's been extraordinary in many ways. So I appreciate all of you. So excited to be here. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show and I'm going to close the show out like I normally do. Stay safe and stay sane and I'll see you on the next one. Bye, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you are listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.